The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. Listeners, today is our podcast's one year anniversary. Or is it a birthday? Anniversary, birthday, it's time to celebrate. We never imagined we'd be in your ears one year after this endeavor started. I hope you'll celebrate with us by going on to Apple Podcasts and offering a five-star review. You can also share this podcast with that eco-hesitant climate skeptic in your life. Listen alone, listen with your friends, listen in the car while you're cooking dinner. Every time is the right time for the Eco Right Speaks. Thanks for getting us to this monumental point. For today's special episode, we have an amazing guest. Katrina Rourke is Vice President for Policy at the Climate Leadership Council. In this role, she develops the details of the Baker-Schultz Carbon Dividends proposal in consultation with four dozen founding members, including corporate leaders, environmental nonprofits, and influential individuals. She also manages the council's research program and supports the council's advocacy and outreach activities. Prior to joining the council, Katrina served as Director of Energy Policy and Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute, a free market and limited government public policy organization which we are big fans of. It was there that she founded the Institute's Energy and Environment Program. She also previously founded, because she's just on the founding level of so many great programs, as I note in the show, she founded the energy program at the Center-Right American Action Forum, an economic, domestic, and fiscal policy think tank, and, drumroll please, as a legislative assistant to former U.S. Representative Bob Inglis, a name you should know and love, she helped craft the first Republican-sponsored carbon tax bill. So we will reminisce about her work with the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act, as well as discuss an exciting new case study that the Climate Leadership Council recently issued. So please join me and join special guest Bob, who makes an appearance in this episode, in giving a warm welcome to our friend Katrina Rourke. Welcome back, listeners. Again, 20th episode of this season, one-year anniversary, and I couldn't be more thrilled that the timing worked out to have Katrina Rourke and Bob Inglis reunited over Zoom for today's conversation. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have Katrina on, Chelsea. It's terrific. She's like the OG climate staffer for you. Yes, exactly. We stole Katrina fair and square from Noah. You know, years ago, she came to the fourth district office as a, uh, uh, what do you call that, Katrina, designee or something. And yeah, it was staff designee to the Committee on Science and Technology. Right. Wayne made me fit all that on the business card. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne's my former chief of staff. So yeah, so we, uh, we, we decided that that Katrina was so good that we stole her from Noah, fair and square. Um, we got in a bidding war, actually, and, <laughs> um, and won her over. And so 
that made it possible for us to get her great help in, uh, in, in writing the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Well, I thought- Set me on this path. That's right. For sure. And I thought that before we, we talked about specifically about that bill that Bob, you could just rewind for a second and remind our listeners what your evolution was before you came to the epiphany and, and, and working on that bill with Katrina. Yeah. Katrina came to the English 2.0 office. You know, there was a 1.0 that's <laughs> embarrassing <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, but one of them is climate where I disputed climate change for my first six years in Congress, really out of ignorance. And um, so then, uh, you know, my son uh, challenging me, uh, a trip to Antarctica, and then uh, being challenged uh, uh, by the faith of an Aussie climate scientist, my dear friend, Scott Heron, uh, that turned it into English 2.0, the guy interested in climate and really needing somebody like Katrina because you know, drafting legislation is really complicated, uh, particularly when you're not on the committee. And we weren't, I wasn't on the committee of jurisdiction. And so you really need somebody like Katrina who who can figure out the the intricacies of this. You know, this is pretty intricate to try to adjust social security, uh, you know, deal with social security um, and uh, the carbon tax uh, together. That's really, that's a lot to do. So anyway. So Katrina, when you came on board, did you already know that this was going to be your task to work on this bill? Or was that something that evolved once you were there and you and Bob got to know each other? Yeah, so I, Bob blindsided me a little bit, right? So I, I went up to work, what I, what I thought was to um, help Bob when he was ranking member on a subcommittee that oversaw the agency that I came from. Um, that part was gonna be challenging, but um, felt in my wheelhouse. And a couple of weeks in, it was like, uh, oh, surprise. Um, Bob <laughs> is gonna step out, work on carbon pricing, um, first Republican to write a carbon tax bill um, and lucky me, I had to figure out what that meant. Um, so there wasn't a lot to draw on then, right? So we had the carbon price. That part was pretty straightforward. Um, but the what we did with the revenue was we bought down um, payroll taxes, which directly interacts with the social security program. And then we were going to introduce this novel concept called a border carbon adjustment, which at that point, the academic literature was Gary Hofbauer at the Peterson Institute had found a footnote in an annex document to a WTO agreement, and that was the justification for a border carbon adjustment. So we had to take that and turn it into legislative language. Uh, No big deal. No big deal at all, and you crushed it. I mean, this bill has stood the test of time, so... That's uh, that. That's great. And it is really complicated. And I would just note for our listeners that we're talking a little inside baseball with committees of jurisdiction and stuff, but that's kind of the way it works. Congress is a big place. And so it's divided up into committees and members get on committees and committees have jurisdiction over different federal agencies and different things that um, the federal government does. So you want to quote unquote, be on the committee of jurisdiction. Usually if you're championing a big bill. And so as Bob noted, he was not on, I guess that must have been, was that ways and means that the bill was referred to? And, and energy and commerce, right? And I mean, energy. so it's, I think is sequential. Um, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, and it's so important what Katrina just said about the, the, the academic literature at the time was really not as developed as it is now. I mean, thankfully, because of people like Katrina continuing on, um, it is now much more developed um, and, and it's being discussed right now. You know, the EU is talking about a carbon border adjustment. Uh, China every once in a while uh, mentions that. And so this is really quite the topic. And um, I don't want to jump ahead, uh, Chelsea, well, but, but I'm so say. excited about the, the, the study that, that uh, Katrina has just commissioned. Yeah, I felt like Katrina really did a good job at teeing herself up to talk about her latest case study through the Climate Leadership Council, which is now adding to that library of information, which um, your latest case study, I'll let you um, explain it to the listeners, but in a nutshell shows that this border carbon adjustment would be beneficial to the U.S. steel industry. And as somebody who's like you worked on this issue and legislation for a long time, you know, the steel industry was not always, you know, on board toward wanting to see climate action. And so that was always one of the arguments that I heard against taking um, economy-wide action on climate changes that we were going to hurt the steel industry. So when I saw that, I thought, yes, this is the hook that we need. So please tell our listeners about your latest and greatest. Okay. Um, let me start by saying that if it, if it weren't for Bob, um, making sure that that made it in, it would have been really easy to write this bill without a border carbon adjustment component. Um, that's what Waxman Markey did because it was so hard. Uh, so that there is a literature on it now, that the European Union is talking about it, um, Bob couldn't have foreseen any of that. So right when we were when we were hanging this on a footnote to an annex document, um, Bob had the the vision to see that we couldn't price carbon without pricing it at the border too, um, and it's really changed how we talk about carbon policy. Um, so let me back up. When we talk about pricing carbon. We're, we're entering a conversation where there seems to be a conflict between doing something really ambitious about climate change and improving economic growth. And we, we know that that conflict is a little bit artificial, right? We've studied um, the efficiency of a carbon price versus regulation. So we know that using a price-based model is gonna be better for economic growth than the logical alternative, which is regulation. When we've done research on this question, we find that it's an additional $190 billion on average a year of economic growth if we do a price versus regulation. Okay, so item one, not in conflict. Item two, not in conflict. If we price carbon, we can unleash $1.4 trillion in economic activity to facilitate the energy transition, right? Not in conflict. But there was always this question about what about our manufacturing sector? If we're pricing carbon, aren't we gonna see um, carbon intensive manufacturing move overseas? And that's exactly what a border carbon adjustment is intended to address. Um, we want to benefit carbon efficient producers here in the United States in a price-based market, operating cleanly. We don't want to send that manufacturing to markets overseas that don't price carbon, that don't have environmental controls, um, that don't employ the U.S. workforce. So um, the border carbon adjustment is a really vital part of this. In our work, we've, we've sort of seen this, um, this logical talking point. The U.S. has a carbon efficient economy. We know that that's the case, but we hadn't ever had really good tools to study it. 
Um, so we could get sort of anecdotal evidence that our electricity grid was cleaner or that um, we relied on a more efficient manufacturing process for um, silicone wafers. But we didn't have this sort of high level view. So last September, the Climate Leadership Council released the first study of its kind, which looked at the relative carbon intensity of production um, for the global economy uh, across 64 individual countries and 36 economic sectors. And what we found is that the United States is incredibly carbon efficient, 80% more carbon efficient on average than the global economy, um, a profound carbon advantage in some specific sectors. Um, but the sort of like big buzzy talking points here or the, the big buzzy findings here is that um, China, India, Russia emit 300 to 400% more greenhouse gases for every unit of production than the US economy. So we make things here at home much more cleanly. It is perfectly consistent to decarbonize by making more stuff in the United States than making it overseas and importing it. So I think that is such an important fact. And, and listeners, I will be sure to link in our show notes this report that Katrina is referencing and highlight some of these um, sexy talking points because they're really great. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sort of blew my mind um, that we like, we built this tool to look at it and it was more profound than I I had really I really thought about. So we have this um, we have this finding right. Um, across highly aggregated economic sectors, the US is a really efficient producer. It's hard to wrap your arms around that data. Um, when, I, when I talk to people about it, the logical question is, well, what about my hometown? What about this factory? Um, what, what would happen then? And so um, we released two weeks ago now, um, an update to that um, carbon advantage work, which is a case study on the US steel industry. So we wanted to find out what happens if we price carbon in the U.S. market, apply the same carbon price to imported products, remove that price from exported products. Um, how does the U.S. steel industry shake out? And um, I knew that, that we were going to get good news. I didn't know we were going to get news this good. Our analysis found that um, if you sort of reshuffle the supply curve based on the carbon intensity of production, the US is the most carbon efficient manufacturer of steel of any of our trading partners. Nobody beats us in carbon efficiency. So that's the first finding. The second is that if you introduce our policy, um, a price with a border carbon adjustment, you will cut imports in half and you'll increase sales of domestically produced steel and the profit margin for the domestic steel industry. So we're showing for the first time that a carbon price can increase the profitability of a carbon intensive domestic manufacturing sector. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that is such great news and listeners, you can't see us, but we're all smiling. Um, <laughs> I would be high-fiving you if we were in the same room. So did you pick to look specifically to take the slice of the steel industry because you knew it was gonna be good news or because you feel that if with this good news and maybe the answer is gonna be both when I finish this question, um, that getting that this is a way to help get the steel industry behind a carbon, some sort of carbon pricing structure and that that would then help kind of move the ball along when we are talking about congressional champions and so forth. So I, maybe the answer is a little bit more boring than that. The steel industry has the data. Um, so steel manufacturing is a really competitive sector. Mm -hmm. 
we've seen a lot of investment from steel manufacturers in figuring out what their carbon intensity of production looks like. Um, they know that something like a carbon price, climate regulation, um, border carbon adjustments, any one of those things will impact um, their market share and how they trade. And so um, the steel industry has just been really proactive in identifying the carbon intensity of production so we could study it. Um, it's also um, a perfect industry because steel is in everything. As the US undertakes, as the world undertakes a transition to lower carbon forms of energy, we're gonna be installing a whole lot of stuff made of steel. And it's gonna be really important that we buy that steel from the most carbon efficient producers. So it was a way to look at a carbon intensive manufacturing sector vital to the energy transition that has a lot of data. Wow, I mean, yeah. sorry, go it, ahead. It, it also fits with infrastructure week, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the constant infrastructure week. But really with all this discussion of inf infrastructure, wouldn't it be awesome if it's built with American steel that's actually cleaner and it's just, it's so, it, it just makes sense to me that we would be cleaner, right? Because we used to be Pittsburgh, the place where I remember going one time and the guy driving me around said, he once went to the steel factory to see his uncle and his dad. And he said he saw two humanoid figures and he didn't know who they were until his uncle lowered his goggles and said, hey, Joey. And uh, then he said, oh, that's my dad and my uncle. And so they told him, we're going to get you a job in this plant someday, Joey. And Joey told me, that's when I decided to read. He said he didn't want to work there. He didn't want to work there if that's what you look like. So that's what it looked like in Pittsburgh, say, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Well, that's why Beijing, the air is so bad now. I mean, that's what we basically exported a great deal of that to China. And they're over there belching it out. We've cleaned up. And so now to the extent we have steel in America, it's clean steel. It can be expanded. And when we expand it, because of this work that you've done to show this good news, wow, America can win at this. In other words, this is not us being hurt by acting on climate change. This is us saying, hey, we've, we've cleaned up our act. Pittsburgh is nice now. Pittsburgh is a beautiful town. Newcore Steel in South Carolina makes steel really cleanly. Okay, let's make some more steel here. Hire some more people. And, and tell China, you know, why don't you clean up your act over there? You know, you're really stinking the place out. Uh, not just your local air, but the, the world's air. So it's really, I mean, this is really one of the most exciting studies I've seen in a long time, Katrina, because it does open a new pathway of discussion with your average Republican member of Congress um, and, and all other Democrat, Democrats as well, but especially Republicans who've been thinking, this is going to hurt us to act on climate. No, no, going to help us. Steel industry going to help us. You've got the study. I mean, I'm seeing the bumper stickers, right? Like made with American steel. And I feel like there is a lot of kind of patriotism to build around that, that could help with um, some of our friends on the other side. It lets us speak um, to a lot more audiences, right? There, um, how do I say this? So um, you don't need to really care about climate outcomes to care about implementing a policy like this, right? You can do it because you want to buy more goods made in the United States and you recognize that in the absence of a border adjustment, we're giving an advantage to dirtier overseas producers. We're increasing 
our imports of dirtier products instead of making those same products here at home, which we have the capacity to do. So we can speak to that audience. Um, we can speak in a new way to like the organized labor audience who wants to see increased manufacturing footprint in the United States. And getting the, getting the policies in place to deliver that has been a challenge. But if we're pricing carbon with a border adjustment, then the sort of market incentives are in place to increase domestic manufacturing just because we can make things so much more cleanly here using US labor. So it, it helps us connect a lot of dots um, from sort of disparate policy interests right back to the tools that we would use to create really ambitious domestic climate policy. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So Katrina, uh, maybe you could just share with listeners a little bit of what we've been hearing from, say, the EU, who is... Um, toying with the idea of assessing a border carbon adjustment, and that would inevitably apply to products coming from the U.S., right? Uh, I, I'm not sure the answer to that is yes yet. Um, so we've seen a sort of leaked version of what their carbon border adjustment mechanism will look like, and I have more questions than answers at this point. Uh. So um, they need to have some kind of border measure because the policies that they've implemented EU-wide have not been enough to turn the dial on greenhouse gas emissions, particularly from the manufacturing sector. Um, so they, they need to figure something out. They, they can't just increase prices on those domestic producers without a border measure in place. So now they're thinking about this, what they call the CBAM, um, to, to reconcile EU policies at the border. But it's really challenging. The European Union doesn't have a carbon price. They have a cap and trade system where they distribute free allowances, exempt certain sectors. It, it becomes a little bit of a patchwork. And so it's harder to devise um, a, a border policy because you don't know what you're uh, adjusting for at the border, right? The, the, the policies are hard to sort of count up, add together, and get a specific dollar figure um, to impose at the border. So um, the, it's a challenge. They also are very invested in um, the sort of multilateral UNFCCC climate negotiation process, and they don't want to, um, to blow that up, right? They want to bring their partners along with them. And so their interest is developing that tool for European Union industry, but at the same time, bringing the international community with them. Um, and that's you know sort of another lens that's complicating things because it seems like they really wanna give credit to any goods manufactured in countries that have high ambition. Um, but how do you measure ambition? Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what they, what they come up with, but there are the, the policies that they need to adjust for at the border is more complicated um, than a carbon price like Bob worked on, um, like we're advocating for at the Climate Leadership Council. And um, they have this sort of other, um, this other track where they're trying to figure out what's the right leverage point to make sure that the international community follows along. They're doing it all at the same time. Uh, it's a bear of a project. So um, we'll know more in July about uh, how it turns out. Kind of going back to our own domestic action, is the border carbon adjustment something that could be um, introduced as a bill 
as a standalone bill or does it to work, does it need to be accompanied by a price on carbon? I, I guess I can answer the technical side, but I really want to hear from Bob on the political side, if that's cool. <laughs> well, and, and I wish I were a trade lawyer on this because there's another side, which is the trade lawyer side. I, as I understand it, the trade lawyers say that it's got to be what Chelsea just said, there's got to be a connection there. Uh, but on the political side, I think that what what's exciting here is the frame that your study opens up for conservatives. Um, especially, naturally, we're focused on conservatives at republicy.org. I think you're right. It opens up a great discussion with organized labor and, and, uh, and other, other communities of interest. But for us, we're focused on, on conservative members of Congress and figuring out how they might react to this news. And I want them all to see it because I think that it really just, it, it basically says, you know what, we're doing some things right. And that makes you feel better about yourself. You know, it's like the problem with climate change is if you tell me we're all going to die next Tuesday, well, let's eat, drink and be merry, you know, because if the apocalypse is upon me, I give up. Right. But if you tell me, hey, you know what, you've actually been getting the gold star in cleaning up your steel. You got clean steel. Go sell it. Go, go really produce more here in America and hire more people here. And they're good jobs. Wow. Okay, then. This is pretty exciting. Now we've got something we can crow about. We don't have to feel like we're, we're all doomed and this is going to destroy the economy too. Uh, wow. Well, who wants to do that? But if this is going to actually make things better in America, hey, sign me up. So, yeah, it just it really changes the conversation. And um, those numbers in your study really show some pretty exciting stuff for the American steel industry. And it's so anybody that's got a steel, anybody that's dealing with steel, and that could either be a consumer or a producer of steel. It's good news. And so um, we, we can do this thing. It basically gives us hope we can do it. And that, that opens, yes, Katrina, I think a political uh, uh, discussion that's, that's makes a lot better than it has been. And maybe even and, like a and, sense of bipartisanship too, right, Bob? Because whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, if you have a steel mill in your district or your state, um, or even if you don't, you have a vested interest in seeing this industry flourish, especially with everything that K Katrina said about it being just not even like marginally cleaner than the other steel produced in the world, but just got the sky's the limit on, it seems like on how much um, cleaner it is and how much better it is. So I just feel like there's so much um, compelling, there's so many compelling reasons for Democrats and Republicans to work together to see this industry flourish and to solve climate change at the same time. Yeah, uh, definitely. And it, it shows, if I could just, uh, uh, it really tip my hat to the Climate Leadership Council and Katrina's work here. It shows the value of this kind of study because otherwise people like us at republician.org, we're going around trying to convince people, we got to have information. <laughs> And when you get information like this, that is so tremendously relevant to members of Congress who have steel in their districts, for example, gee, it really, it, it really moves the needle. And uh, so that's why we've got to just make sure that uh, to trumpet this kind of study. And it shows the, 
you know, the, the value of that kind of work. So thank you, Katrina. Oh, it's a pleasure. And we've talked a lot about, about steel today, but um, we're going to keep working on this. Um, steel was a perfect case study for us, but our research shows that we have a carbon advantage across the economy. Um, so while we have this one case study, uh, I want to make sure that we're highlighting all of the economic opportunity related to leveraging what we already have, a carbon advantage that we already have that we can't monetize for the American manufacturing market until we have something like a border carbon adjustment in place. You, you answered a question I had, which was what's next for the Climate <laughs> Leadership Council. And that's exciting. It's really exciting to me. And I think about a few weeks ago, Bob was with Congresswoman Nancy Mace out on the water and they were talking about climate impacts in her district. And, and Bob, Newcourse Steel is in her district, right? Right. It's, it's really important to South Carolina. Like another great reason or another sort of reason that we can follow up with her. We can share this and, and with her. And I just think it's so exciting. All the potential is, is so exciting. Yeah. And, and to give you an example of the interconnectedness, they, they make steel in uh, Nancy Mace's district, the first district, and BMW buys that steel to go into BMWs in the district that I used to represent. And so it's uh, yeah, the producers and the users of that steel. Um, and it, so it's clean steel. And that's a pretty a clean, you know, uh, uh, let me not overstate that. There are clearly emissions in the production of steel, but it's cleaner than it, if it were coming from some places, it really makes some pretty dirty steel. Um, and so play to your strengths. And that's what this is going to enable us to do. I wanted to just pull back for one second before we let Katrina go and and talk about what and sorry, Bob, but this is a conversation for the women. <laughs> you and I have both kind of for about the same amount of time, it seems, been women working on the right in conservative circles trying to solve climate change. How has this experience been for you? You have I feel like you have been at the founder level of so many different efforts toward this end. And so I just wanted to, to pick your brain a little bit on how that feels. You know, we operate in circles that do tend to be dominated by men. And so to be um, a woman taking charge, how, how has that experience been for you? Well, I, maybe I've been at the founder level for a lot of stuff because our field is still so small. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it, it's been, um, it's been really wonderful. I, I have to say that it's lonely at times. There aren't very, very many women who work in this field, um, but I, I've had so many opportunities because people see the value of, um, sort of scratching, scratching the itches on the questions that I want to ask. Um, so I'm, I'm only working on carbon pricing because, um, Bob stole me from Noah, and uh, <laughs> and I've only kept working on carbon pricing because so many really thoughtful minds in the right of center space um, see this as a pathway forward. So I've had the pleasure of working for a Doug Holt Deacon, for Eli Lair, um, and for the late Ted Halstead, all folks who really want to see a difference being made um, on how conservatives approach uh, questions related to climate policy. Um, so uh, I, I wish there were more women in the field. I wish our field was was bigger, better funded. I wish we could do more of the research that we're doing at the Climate Leadership Council with more resources. Um, but I'm, I'm just so grateful for all of the terrific partners that I've had along the way. Um, our field is growing. 
um, maybe too slowly, <laughs> um, but there are more of us uh, working on this now than there were in 2009. That's for sure. That is for sure. And I'm so grateful to Bob for stealing you from Noah. I think we all need to raise a toast tonight to that move, Bob. That was maybe one of your best moves. Oh, yes. It was, uh, yeah, it was fair and square. I mean, we, 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 it was fair and square. So uh, sorry, Noah, your loss is our gain and uh, climate's gain. Uh, actually, I bet Noah is celebrating with us. Uh, they're, they're saying, yes, that's terrific that Katrina had that opportunity. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do. I hope you get all of the grants you need in the world to continue your studies and that I, I know that the work you're doing is going to help move the, the needle. So thank you for everything you do and for being here to celebrate our one year anniversary of being podcasters. Bob was skeptical. Bob, Bob always starts off a little skeptical. <laughs> That's right. Got to prove it. And Chelsea's been proving it. Chelsea and Price been proving it. And, uh, so that's it's really exciting because we have uh, guests like uh, guests like you, Katrina. So uh, we're we're in business in the podcast business. It's such a pleasure. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Happy anniversary to us, Price Atkinson here, producer of the Eco Right Speaks podcast. To wrap it up, after our esteemed host Chelsea Henderson kicked it off our anniversary edition episode number 20 of season two but most importantly as she mentioned the one year anniversary since this podcast the eco right speaks was conceived and we're excited because we have come a long way in a short period of time and it was awesome to hear that blast from the past katrina rourke a former colleague of mine in bob inglis's office working in the fourth congressional district offices i remember when she was a NOAA fellow and came to us and then eventually transitioned very quickly it seemed into a full-time staffer uh, working for us uh, versus on the NOAA side where she was shared but it was awesome having her join this episode and also having bob uh, to talk about the you know the raise wages cut carbon act and just how far uh, things have come uh, since 2009 when Katrina was the key architect of that bill. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Garth Van Meter, our legislative director uh, in the office at the time, and Wayne Roper, who was our chief of staff. There were a lot of hands on it, but certainly Katrina Rourke was the architect. So awesome having her. Awesome having all of you and celebrating this really milestone episode um, as the pandemic set things in motion where we had to think outside the box and do things a little bit differently. And so we did, uh, launching the Eco Right Speaks podcast and hope you all have enjoyed it ever since. You can subscribe, download, listen every single Tuesday, a new episode. All you got to do is pull up iTunes, you know, Apple Podcast on your iPad, your smartphone, uh, your computer, however you want. Search EcoRight Speaks and hit subscribe right there. If you're an Android user, the Spotify app, free, easy way to download our podcast right there if you are an Android user. So many different ways. And also, we would love to have you stand with us, republican.org forward slash join. We need you. The power is in numbers. Please stand with us, republican.org forward slash join. But that's going to do it. Again, if you're so inclined, we would love to have you uh, give us a rating, four or five stars, whatever you want to do. It makes it easier for others to find our podcast. And if you've got a couple minutes, uh, it all of a sudden honestly only takes really about 30 seconds. You want to you know, give a rating, but also if you want to give a comment, what you like, what you don't like. We will read it on the air, especially those um, that you comment about what you like. So thank you again for everybody for listening. 
ever since we started this thing last June. Chelsea Henderson has been awesome to work with along the way. Bob Inglis for believing in us and letting us do this podcast and supporting it every step of the way since we launched it. But again, Price Atkinson for Chelsea Henderson, Katrina Roark, Bob Inglis on this week's episode. We'll do it again next week, next Tuesday. Again, a new episode of the Eco Right Speaks every week. Until then, we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.